Jason, what'd you do this weekend? I took the most amazing defensive driving course like in the entire world. It was awesome. I had to do one of those when I was going through driver's ed in Virginia, and it was kind of lame. What what was so cool about yours? Were all of your instructors part-time NASCAR racers? No, I had a lovely, lovely lady who used to be an assistant principal at my school, and she told us to uh, t hit the brakes. That was about it. That's about as much as my defensive driving got to. What all did you do? Okay, so there's this defensive driving program that's all across the United States. It's called BRAKES. BRAKES stands for Be Responsible and Keep Everyone Safe. And... It was founded by this um, former NASCAR racer who's, uh, whose two boys died in a car crash. Whoa. Yeah, and he began this nonprofit called Brakes for um, teenagers to take a defensive driving course and learn how to drive more safely. And they actually did a study, and it's shown that teenagers who take brakes are 64% less likely to get into car crashes. That's an exciting number. I'd love to see 64% less accidents on the road. Yeah, and there were some insane courses that we took. So they put skid tires on the back of the car, so they taught you how to counter a skid. There was a slalom course where you just had to swerve in between all of these cones. I mean, how, how much were those tires? You said something earlier. $750 per skid tire. So that's $3,000 to put tires on a practice car for, to prevent teenagers from killing themselves in car crashes. Well, it's only the rear two wheels, but oh, they okay. have multiple cars. Luckily, Kia oh donates all of the cars to brakes. So Kia donated two fleets of cars is what they have now. Some have skid tires, some are normal ones. And the normal ones, you go through these courses like crash avoidance, which is really cool for like split second decisions. I had to floor the gas pedal and then just <laughs> like, again, floor the brake. So they were basically teaching you how to not just drive straight through something, but it was so cool to see how quickly the car could stop. It was literally on a dime. Perfect. They ran you off the road. And one of the, so there's, there's two things I learned there. 15,000 lives could be saved from wearing seatbelts because apparently teens don't wear a lot of seatbelts. 50% of teens will get into a car crash before they graduate high school. And then running off the road is the, the number one cause for a fatal car accident for Whoa. teenagers. Yeah, running off the road. And it's not because you run off the road. It's because of the reaction to get back on the road. People overreact, go too far back into the road. This oftentimes happens like on the highway. And then those, a crash will happen. Well, sounds like an exciting way to spend a Saturday. It was, the, it was actually on Sunday. Oh, but it was no. the... It was like a three or four hour course and I had so much fun. I learned so much. And when I drove after that with my mom, I felt like such a better, uh, such like a more improved driver. And I just wanted to give a quick shout out to my man, Elliot Williams. He was one of my favorite instructors there. And I'm specifically doing this because he said I would forget to shout him out. And I would, he said I would forget his name, but I did not forget his name. He was one of my favorite instructors and I'm going to send him this episode so he knows. I remember, and I'm very grateful for everyone there that taught me. So sounds just a big like, shout out to Brakes. I think every every teenager should definitely look to do it and sign up. Uh, sounds like a great deal. But, of course, that's not quite what we're here to talk about today. But it does yeah. sound like a really exciting program. I'm glad. You said that was a national program, right? That's yeah. not just here in North Carolina. They're in 45 states so far, and you need to sign up way in advance because they're in high demand. Good stuff. Yeah. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a humanities instructor and debate coach here at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. Today I'm joined by my co-host, Ethan Delves, who, as you've heard, has uh, survived his uh, harrowing experiences learning how to not die in car crashes. Yep. Today we are here to discuss the NSDA Nationals 2019 Public Forum Resolution, which reads... Resolved, the United States federal government should enforce antitrust regulations on technology giants. 
Ethan, what's, what, what are your thoughts on this resolution? So when I first saw this resolution, I really wasn't that excited just because I'm more of an LD guy and I see the public forum resolution thinking I'm going to be digging into an, like tons of laws and policies and stuff. But when I started looking into the, the different parts of the resolution, I think it's pretty cool. And my perspective shifted a little bit as I, as I went through my readings and stuff like that. So which which like really it. is one of the things that debate ought to do, right? I mean, it yeah. forces us to examine our own assumptions when we read something and realize, whoa, this actually is more interesting. There's more going on here than I initially suspected. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh, and uh, so uh, part of this, I figured uh, as I laid this out, I think we'll move through a few different sections here. But let's let's start with some basic resolution analysis. Uh, what, what do you observe going on in this resolution? What's what's happening here? You know, what's weird is giants. That's like, a weird word. I hear technology or big tech companies referred to as either big tech collectively for the big five or technology giants. But how are you going to measure that? What do you think? Well, that, that seems like the initial question, right? I mean, how do we, who decides who are the technology giants? That's there, a pretty subjective measurement. Are you familiar with like a huge gap between the small tech businesses and then the large tech businesses? Or is it more of like a, a progressive, like there's no like real huge gap in between the two? Or? Well, I mean, I, I don't know of anything specifically there. So if you're fishing for something, you'll have to help us out with that in a second. But I would suspect there's not as huge of a gap. It's not like we're looking at ants and then giants that are about to crush the ants, but instead there seem to be smaller companies, uh, some that are really tiny, that are more at the local level, some that are national chains like Best Buy or, um, uh, I don't know, uh, Verizon might be in that national chain echelon, but then you have your obvious tech giants, Google, Facebook, um, uh, I'm blanking. Microsoft, oh, my, Facebook, Alphabet. Yep, Samsung yeah. might be in there too. Uh, that, that, and especially if we consider that on a global scale, we're set, we've got to bring in some other international competitors. Alibaba. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. So okay. Giants really stood out to me. Um, the fact that it's a federal enforcement, I think it makes a resolution a little bit easier because when you have the United States, you get into all the little state policies and it gets really messy. Mm -hmm. um, and antitrust regulations was, I mean, I'm just literally saying all the words in the resolution, but my, my, the one that started the most was giants. And I had to dig into uh, trusts a little bit and the, the more specific kind of metrics there. But after you research all the terms of the resolution, it's a little bit more straightforward. And I've seen some really interesting arguments for it too. Uh, we'll, we'll get into those here in just a few moments, but I think it's important to back up to the beginning there. We are looking at the United States federal government and that, that's really our active agent. And it's important to note that we have a clear term that delimits this resolution. And you mentioned this a moment ago, that means that this, this resolution is going to pose issues to anybody who wants to look at this in terms of a particular state. I'm not sure that there would be any really dividing factors between the states anyways. Again, I haven't looked into it, but like, can you, for as far as regulating big tech giants, how do you regulate such a huge company within one small state? Is that like putting restrictions on? Well, because on uh, I actually just looked at this a couple weeks ago when I was, uh, I was deciding whether or not to put our podcast on Spotify, which any listeners who are unaware, we are now on Spotify. So there you go. There we go. Uh, but the every company that does business, when they have a contract, like, and I'm sure you've seen these, the all the things you just click. Yes, I have read. I promise I've read it. I, I agree. agree. Check here. Yeah. And of course, very rarely do we actually read these things, right? Well, I actually read the one for Spotify because I wanted to make sure we would still own our podcast. See, it's different it when it's your own content, right? Totally. You've got to be more totally. careful. But uh, Spotify, if I remember correctly, now Spotify is a s Swedish company, but for their contract, they're, uh, for you know, being in the United States, they do business in the United States under the laws of a particular state. 
when we were that day, I was also looking at a ver various other podcast hosts, Stitcher, Blueberry, a bunch of others. They all have their contracts be governed by the laws of a particular state. So I think I would disagree with you that actually okay. it does matter there. And I've not done the research to know which states have really tight antitrust laws. But, for example, I would suspect that the, the state of Texas would have a much higher level of regulation on trust than, for example, Nevada. And yeah, I'll, I'll accede to that point completely. I just wasn't yeah. sure because I haven't read that but part. But for, for that, I mean, that really, we've got 50 states, each one that may have a particular interest in a, in a company or an area of business. And as we'll get into when we get into the kind of the history of this, the, the, the trust idea has a lot to do with when people are afraid of competition. And so in some states, there may be a bigger issue with competition in one area than another. So one state may have a, have a set of regulations that really are concerned with that, whereas other states may not care about regulating that particular aspect of their economy. Are you saying that as far as trusts are concerned, people are afraid of competition or the lack of competition? Well, really, a trust happens when you have a company or a group of companies that have gotten so big that the fear is that there could not be competition against this large company or this group of companies. Right. And that, those companies are then termed a trust, which is another a synonym for a monopoly. And they're looking, the idea is that these companies are so big, no one could ever actually compete. Well, that is going to have a lot to do with what field that company is in. So, for example, I mentioned Texas earlier. Texas has a lot of work in the oil and oil trade or area. I'm trying to avoid saying oil fields because obviously they're fields. Yeah, that would be a little ambiguous. Yeah, but in the in terms of oil, Texas may very well have some laws saying no oil company can be this big. Hmm. But obviously, there's not huge deposits of oil that we know of in Tennessee. Tennessee's not worried about that. Now, all of this matters because in our resolution, the U.S. federal government is our acting agent. So if you run up against a case that is really dealing with the trust laws of a particular state, that's off topic from the get-go. Right away. You could probably just knock that down immediately. Exactly. So that uh, for those writing cases, that's probably our first big piece, that make sure you're dealing with the major federal trust laws rather than any particular state trust laws. And just to kind of bring in a more clear definition of trust, I looked on Investopedia, which gives a really good summary of antitrust laws and trusts as they are. Uh, Investopedia says a trust is a type of closed-end fund built as a public limited company. So Say that one more time, slowly. A type of closed-end fund built as a public limited company, which okay. I thought, I don't know, because that, so I guess it's worded a little weird, but it kind of goes along with what you said, right? Like a company is sort of in an alliance, not even an alliance, but they're closed off to the rest of the market. So it's like, it's like a monopoly. The... There we go. Uh, I found a good line from the Federal Trade Commission that sort of I think is getting at kind of what they're uh, are getting at some of that, where they're looking at one document called the Sherman Act that was passed in 1890, and the Sherman Act outlaws every contract, combination, or conspiracy and restraint of trade and any quote monopolization, attempted monopolization, or conspiracy or combination to monopolize. Now, the Sherman Act is the very first antitrust act, and the trust is, into, is, look, is looked at as a company or group of companies that is trying to lock down the market in such a way that they can then fix the prices and no one can compete with their prices, which if you're a company, that's great. If you're a consumer, that sparks an awful lot of worries and an awful lot of fears about what happens when the prices of important goods are fixed and no one can really compete to force those prices down. And what do you think of this locking down of the market? Because um, what's running through my mind right now is sort of what the affirmative has to argue for in this resolution. 
does the affirmative have to prove that there's an active locking down of the market or that there's a dangerous potential for it? I think I would go more with the potential for it on the affirmative side. Because I think affirmative is going to have the same trouble that antitrust cases usually have. It's really difficult to prove that a trust actually exists. Companies are act, they employ lawyers to make sure that they are in compliance with the major antitrust regulations. But that doesn't mean that they're not violating the spirit of these laws. These laws exist in order to pre, uh, create a space for free market competition. And so what the affirmative needs to do is to say, you know, look, even though companies are compliant with the letter of the law, they're really violating the spirit of the law by cooperating in such a way to lock out the market and keep any competitors from really infringing on their space. What do you think of the um, verbal phrase in the resolution should enforce? Well, I think that's going to direct us to uh, two different places. Uh, first, that the, that's probably going to put us to the executive branch of the government, which is according to the United States Constitution. So this is going to fall under the president's role and then all of the agencies that he has established, the main one of which is the Federal Trade Commission. That's the body that is tasked by the office of the president and usually uh, by, and also by Congress to enforce these laws. Uh, but then also looking at the court system, uh, the court system has several cases that really become uh, helpful in clarifying this. So for evidence here, uh, that's going to send people looking to court cases, to legislation. But then I also think enforce is really interesting. Enforce means we're not doing the affirmative's normal job or pro's normal job in public forum. We're not calling for new legislation. We're hmm. literally arguing for enforce the laws on the books. And what effects those laws being enforced would have? Well, that's that's going to be an interesting question. There's a lot of room for impact calculus. Yeah. <clears throat> now that I think about it, there really is a lot of room for impacts. I didn't even consider. Because, uh, like, I I put down a few that I could see on both sides, but then now I'm running through my mind just some really major impacts can come out of actually enforcing these like laws. Like what? What are you thinking? What, what could happen if laws are enforced? I'm thinking, so we have the big five, right? We were saying them earlier. It's Microsoft. Alphabet, Facebook, Google, and what was it? Was Facebook? Uh, Facebook. Is, it, is Apple in there? Is Apple one of the big five? I thought it was. I don't think Apple was one of the big five. You can double check really quick. Um, um, I remember I found a few different groups, and that too is part of the ambiguity of this. Here it is. This I resolution. Okay, good. What it's, you got? Um, it says Apple. Well, I don't know if this is referring to the big five, but it says Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Alphabet, and Microsoft. So that's five. Yeah. Are collectively worth more than the entire economy of the UK. And what source are you looking at for this that? This is uh, Inc.com. Okay. So, yeah. I found a, a list, and it agrees with your information. So, so this is Apple. Yeah. We're confirmed. We're, right. we're, uh, I found a list on the World Economic Forum that was looking at the highest valued tech firms. Uh, in the in the world, uh, and the top five are all in the United States, and they're the ones you just mentioned. Uh, Apple is valued at nine hundred and fifteen billion dollars. Amazon is valued eight hundred twenty-eight billion dollars. Alphabet is valued at seven hundred eighty-one billion dollars, which I don't know very much about Alphabet, so that's interesting. Uh, Microsoft is seven hundred seventy-one billion, and then Facebook is a little bit further down the list at five hundred fifty-six billion dollars. All I know about Alphabet is that they're the parent company of Google. Otherwise, oh, oh, that's Alphabet. Okay, they're yeah. the ones that are really doing all of Google's side projects. Okay, yeah. and um, so yeah, as far as enforcing goes, it's if these aren't currently being enforced, and we have these huge five companies pretty much driving our GDP and economy forward, what would happen putting putting a, a limit on these companies and breaking them apart in some way, or limiting 
who knows like what these regulations could do. I think it'll be helpful to kind of go through these later in the episode. But implementing all of these policies, how much would it hurt these companies and how much would that hurt the overall economy? But that doesn't that's not to say we shouldn't enforce the law. Right, right. Because the law should be enforced. That's why it's there. That's but that's you know, it is interesting that what happens when people grow to expect things to be a certain way, and then they feel, whether rightly or wrongly, but they feel that there's an injustice when the expectations are changed. Yeah. Or one of the my favorite examples of this was uh when uh, one of my college history professors explained that there was a about a hundred year period in American colonial history when tax laws were not really enforced, hmm. and the British government was not worried about smuggling that happened in the American colonies, they just simply had other things to worry about. So a huge smuggling endeavor, smuggling businesses sprang up, but then in 1756 you have the Seven Years' War, 1756 to 1763. Uh, in American terms, that's the French and Indian War. In European uh, area, that's the Seven Years' War. After 1763, the British government says, all right, American colonies, we just spent a ton of money fighting the French. We need you to cough up. Well, they literally tried to do exactly what the resolution is saying. They enforced the regulations. The law is duly passed through Congress, not through Congress, through Parliament, uh, and enforced by the king. But that's a huge part of the drive the, towards the American Revolution. Actually enforcing the laws contributed to people saying, whoa, wait a minute, what do you mean you want to tax my stamps and my tea and everything else? Yeah. yeah. So I think you're absolutely right. There could be a lot of business impacts here. And I remember a little bit later in American history, there was um, you know, Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie. And I, I don't know if it was both of them, but I know one of them, so Rockefeller with oil and Carnegie with steel, mm -hmm. had monopolies on these industries. And then they were limited by... Um, the U.S. federal government because they had they complete control over the industry. Yep. So these trust regulations go back a little while too. I think it'd be interesting to look at the court cases from those if we have good record of them and analyze what exactly a trust looks like back then and what it looks like now. Well, I think the last term we really should get at is the uh, we should discuss this technology giants term for just a little bit. You know, one of the things that uh, leaps out at me about here is the subjectivity of the term. Yeah. And this really seems like, okay, who would really term something a giant? Well, that's not something any company is going to name itself. Because that kind of has a little stigma on it, too. It you don't does. Because be everyone's talking about crony capitalism and, like, all of these um, just crazy ideas about companies running with the government and then too much of the money's at the top and then small businesses are struggling. You don't want to be called a technology giant. Well, and part of that too goes back to the meaning of the word giant itself, where giant is a contraction of the word gigantic, which gets introduced into English uh, early on in a 16th century novel that has a character named Gargantua. The Gargantua and the gigantic, the giant, is referring to something that is monstrous in size. So we refer to, if you go back in literature, uh, you have the Cyclops in Homer, you have the giants in the Old Testament that are supersized people, tens of feet, 30 feet tall. These are the giants. They are beyond normal size. But when you take that same term and you apply it to a company, it seems kind of odd because is there a normal size that a company should be? And then does has this company somehow swollen to become giant? Well... First, I like how you use the word monstrous because that really indicates that there is a stigma in the word giant. And when you put it with technology for technology giants, my my thoughts right now is what do you think about – so technology giants is really subjective. Where could you see this kind of not playing out in a team's favor? Like, is Are there any companies that come to mind or, or regulations or ideas that come to mind that would affect companies that are slightly below the big five status? 
Well, I that, think that like one team could harp on or like use in their case under the ambiguity of technology giant. Well, at what point do you say? I, mean, I think part of where affirmative is going to run into trouble is that by enforcing this against the technology giants, you raise you leave room for the obvious question. Well, at what point does another company that's up and coming become a technology giant that triggers this kind of enforcement? Because then everyone's kind of reaching this artificial cap on the economy that you can't. There's this ceiling that you just can't break through because there's a, a exactly. regulation there. And I think uh, one of the pieces I find really interesting that probably will come into this, a little bit further down on the World Economic Forum's list, uh, this is company number eight, Netflix, is currently valued at $173 billion. So there, look at that gap right there, though, on that on that chart. You, it's it huge. It goes from fours to one. So $477 billion for, what does that say? Uh, the T right here. Oh, Tencent. Yeah, yeah. Tencent. And then Netflix is under that, but it's nearly $300 billion under that. So I do see a bit of a jump right there as far as giants mm -hmm. and non-giants go. Well, that's true. And you've also got the difference there. Netflix is a U.S. company. Tencent is a Chinese company. Not at all to undervalue $173 billion, by right. the way. Right. Well, what I wanted to get at there was that the connection, Netflix is now facing competition. Uh, because Netflix has had has been sort of untouchable in the, in the old space, economic space of digital streaming. Even though Hulu and Amazon have tried, they don't really compare to Netflix in terms of uh, access. Amazon is much higher on the list, but that's not because everyone loves Amazon streaming more than Netflix. People use Amazon for lots of other things. But Disney is now getting into that space, and Disney's streaming service is projected, they're launching later this year, and I suspect they're going to be direct competitors with Netflix. So the real question there, I think, is partly, okay, if you say that this applies to technology giants, well, are you assuming that rather, and this is going to be a good argument when we get into on Neg in a moment, or on Khan, uh, are you assuming that another company can't simply get to this place where they can compete with those giants, and we actually can get that kind of competition that the free market thrives on? Again, a really good question. I'm not sure because of the subjectivity of the term, but I think yeah. we'll get into that. Well, let's get into some of the stuff on uh, antitrust laws. Uh, okay, so uh, Ethan, could you? I, I know we pulled. I pulled some quotes together here. Uh, could you start us off with the one on the about the uh, the summary of this from the Federal Trade Commission? So yeah, I'll just read this straight off from the Federal Trade Commission. It says, um, "Free and open markets are the foundation of a vibrant economy." Aggressive com competition among sellers in an open marketplace gives consumers, both individuals and businesses, the benefits of lower prices, higher quality products and services, more choices, and greater innovation. The FTC's competition mission is to enforce the rules of the competitive marketplace, the antitrust laws. These laws promote vigorous competition and protect consumers from anti-competitive mergers and business practices. Before I move on, that word vigorous, I'm going to talk about that in a second because I think that's really good. Mm -hmm. And to continue, the FTC's Bureau of Competition, working in tandem with the Bureau of Economics, enforces the antitrust laws for the benefit of consumers. So right under the executive branch that we were talking about earlier. But using the word vigorous along with competition here, that's that's a really good term for them to use because trusts are... are Putting, or there's a fear of trust because there's a fear of a lack of competition because then the consumer's in danger because there's a monopoly just over the entire thing, like overhead on the economy. But vigorous competition is almost the antithesis to that. You have so much competition everywhere. The consumer's seeing prices drop, they're seeing quality go up. So I don't know. I really like that sentence from there. I think they did a good job on that. Well, I think the, the, and the heart there is looking at the purpose of this antitrust legislation that the Federal Trade Commission is seeking to enforce. They're not trying to shut down 
the idea of economic competition. Instead, they're looking to have strong competitors in a free and open marketplace. And what a good idea to just put a purpose behind these things on like the on the government's website as well, like a mission statement too. I don't. I feel like I don't, or I think that I guess I don't see that very often. Uh, but that was really clear and really simple. So. The, uh, I think the part of what they're getting at there is this is the idea, Frederick Hayek gets at this in his book, The Constitution of Liberty. They're looking at the idea of justice and the role of the government in creating justice, looking a little bit like a sports game with good referees and an agreed upon set of rules. And if you have a good referee, which you and I both know does not always happen, Right. We we just lost a, a soccer game uh, last week when our, our girls team made it to state and the universal feel I heard and or not feel but words I heard had everything to do with the fact that the referees had lots of unfair calls. Baseball has seen their fair share of moments from that as well. Yep. Yeah. But when you have good referees who follow the rules fairly for both sides, then what you really have is great competition. And you have the space for the best players to really do the best they can in playing the game. So there is room for some sort of regulation. Or without regulation, you'd almost see anarchy. Is is my first? It's not like a in a, maybe a governmental sense, but in an economic sense, the first ones to get to the top stay at the top. Right, but, and uh, that, that one at the top is going to be the one with the biggest club who wants to smack away anybody who's coming to try and dethrone him. A little authoritarian analogy there. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I from this summary and our conversation afterwards, I can see room for regulation from the government as being a beneficial thing for increasing competition and benefiting the marketplace. And this whole antitrust idea is really born out of uh, that very moment in the late 19th century, the 1880s, 1890s, when for the first time in American history, we start seeing massive national companies. Uh, the, you mentioned Rockefeller and Carnegie earlier with U.S. Steel and uh, Rockefeller's oil company. Uh, all of a sudden, we start getting these companies that seem to be operating on a whole nother scale that had never been seen before. And it gave rise in 1890 to the Sherman Act that I, I read a bit from before. Uh, so the FTC lists three uh, main acts that are dealing with the establishment of the antitrust regulation. So there have been other court cases that kind of add nuance to these, but these three are the primary pieces of legislation that deal that establish the antitrust legislation that the resolution is referring to. So our resolution is really advocating the enforcement of these three acts that we'll need to spend a moment kind of walking through together. The Sherman Act seems to be the most prevalent of these. All of the other ones after that, which also take place later in time, two of them, both in 1914, seem to allude to the the Sherman Act, which was uh, 24 years before, as kind of the foundation for antitrust laws. And it seems progressing through history to stay the foundation of antitrust laws. And that doesn't really seem to shift very much either. I think you're right. So I'm going to read the FTC's paragraph. And these these paragraphs all come from FTC.gov and our show notes on whatsthereres.com. We'll list, we'll have the link there if anybody wants to be able to look at that. Uh, So the FTC puts it this way. The Sherman Act outlaws every contract, combination, or conspiracy in restraint of trade and any monopolization, attempted monopolization, or conspiracy or combination to monopolize. Long ago, the Supreme Court decided that the Sherman Act does not prohibit every restraint of trade, only those that are unreasonable. For instance, in some sense, uh, an agreement between two individuals to form a partnership restrains trade but may not do so unreasonably, and thus may be lawful under the antitrust laws. 
On the other hand, certain acts are considered so harmful to competition that they are almost always illegal. These include plain arrangements among competing individuals or businesses to fix prices, divide markets, or rig bids. These acts are per se violations of the Sherman Act. In other words, no defense or justification is allowed. The FTC defines monopoly as, quote, the exclusive possession or control of the supply of or trade in a commodity or service. Ethan, what are your thoughts about that long passage? First, I'm going to double check that definition for a monopoly because I'm not certain that it comes from the FTC. So oh, while we're talking about that, I'll just double check that. But my, the biggest thing that stands out to me from the Sherman Act is how completely, how iron fist it is. It's no justification, no defense. So that's the number one thing for me. It just seems pretty straightforward. And um, I'm interested to see what the other two say because that's mm -hmm. a, a pretty hard kind of approach to it. Well, and I think it's the that paragraph also gives us three specific things that are uh, that it's acting against, which I suspect would really point us back to the historical moment that the Sherman Act was written in. That these are things that the legislators who wrote the Sherman Act are seeing happen, and they believe that these are harmful to the uh, free practice of the economy. That definition of monopoly just comes from Google's dictionary. Oh. So. Okay, never we mind. We can find a more official one of our yep. listeners' desire, but just a basic general monopoly, that's yep. what it is. Okay, so we've got three main things that are specifically stated that uh, groups, that companies that work together cannot, according to this, do. The first of those is fixed prices. So meaning that the idea there is that a price it works as an index of value in a free market. Well, if you and I form two, have two companies and I call you one day and say, hey, Ethan, uh, is $10 per gallon of gas enough for your company to have a profit? What would you say? Um, no. Okay. How about $12 a gallon? Is $12 a good price? Sure. You know, $12 definitely gives me lots of profit margin on all of your gas stations. So we have uh, Delves Gas Co. Let's go ahead and have the price be $12 a gallon. Over at Herring Gas Co., I'll go ahead and set mine at $12.01. And you can even have the, the, the extra penny offer on having the lower price. And we might just agree to fix the price there. And if you and I own every gas station in town, what does that mean for our consumers? We're, I mean, they have only us to choose from and we make all the money. That's great for us. Terrible for the consumer. And now the same deal goes for dividing a market. If we decide to just split the market and we draw a line down the, down the, down the town and say, everything on the eastern half is yours, western half is mine. Done. And we just set that as an agreement between us. Well, now we've really destroyed our comp competition. It's almost like hacking the market is like the number one word that comes to mind for me. Just hacking. It's just cutting corners and, and making it easy to make a ton of money. Not but, to say that founding a company is easy in it or anything. but like, Right. But it, it should be done fairly. And when we when in doing all of these actions are really intended to rig the market right. in that same way, which they last one they list there is rigging bids as if where we would pretend to have a free and open offer on the prices. But what we actually do is we rig the competition from the get go. Uh, okay, Ethan, uh, read us that next bit about penalties. What happens if we violate the Sherman Act? So, per the FTC, the Sherman Act imposes criminal penalties of up to $100 million for a corporation and $1 million for an individual, along with up to 10 years in prison. Under federal law, the maximum fine may be increased to twice the amount the conspirators gain from illegal acts or twice the money lost by the victims of the crime if either of those amounts is over $100 million. So, conspirators is also really... Like, I, I don't know what other word they would have used, but... That's a pretty strong word as well. So these these are more serious than I thought, and people are are more like 
straightforward that with these policies than I thought originally because the the Sherman Act seems to like a hundred million dollars in ten years in prison. That's crazy. Well, Again. like any good law, we have strong enforcement. Now, does it strike you as too strong, or does that seem pretty? Pretty fair. No, that that strikes me as those strike me as as reasonable penalties for heads of major companies. So think of that not so much as if it was you and me and our small single town gas station monopoly that we were describing just a moment ago. But instead, think about Mark Zuckerberg. That's nothing for him. Exactly. But and the real penalty for him is probably the ten years in prison. And now, if we're thinking about a company that's on the scale of Facebook, and with the, uh, I had the number a moment ago, their valuation being at $556 billion, charging them $100 million isn't pennies, but it's close. It's not, that's not going to destroy their company. But it also is a real punishment in a way. Hmm. So I think this reflects the level of wealth of the people who are in a position to commit this kind of a crime. And again, to put this next to, next to the subjectivity of the term technology giants, so how big of an impact would a penalty like this have on a company based on how much money they make? And from the you know top 10, top 15 list that we have in front of us, it $100 million would make an impact, but it doesn't seem to be the most major thing that an act could do. Right. Now, it's probably also worth noting that conspiracy is really hard to prove. Yeah. That's why that term struck me so much. It's, mm -hmm. it's just, it doesn't seem like the right word to use there almost. But if, if it is there, if you have people who at these highest levels are conspiring together to give themselves more profit and harm the consumer, then that's, that's the, that's, that shows us the level of proof that the FTC is looking for. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move forward in time. In 1914, Congress passed the Federal Trade Commission Act, uh, which bans, quote, the unfair methods of competition and unfair or deceptive acts or practices, unquote. The Supreme Court has said that all violations of the Sherman Act also violate the FTC Act. Thus, although the FTC does not technically enforce the Sherman Act, it can bring cases under the FTC Act against the same kind of activities that violate the Sherman Act. The FTC Act also reaches other practices that harm competition, but that may not fit neatly into categories of conduct formally prohibited by the Sherman Act. Only the FTC brings cases under the FTC Act. So it says that the Sherman Act is the FTC does not technically enforce the Sherman Act. Does that mean the Sherman Act is not enforced or is not enforced by the FTC? I'm I assuming the second one. I would also assume the second one, that it's not enforced by the FTC, but it can be. Meaning okay. that the FTC can look at the other act actions that are mentioned by the Sherman Act, but it's going to bring the charge under this act, the Federal Trade Commission Act, that gives it its authority to exist as an agency. You would think that the ambiguity would end somewhere, but I see unfair methods of competition and unfair or deceptive acts or practices. Where, how are you supposed to prove by, is there any objective standard that the law sets for being unfair or deceptive? There doesn't seem to be a number. There doesn't seem to be a, a re evidence requirement for the prosecution to, to bring to the table. So, Well, this really is where I think this is going to tie into the fact that this is something that each generation has to wrestle with. And if you're going to bring a case against a company and say, these five companies, like perhaps the big five tech firms we've been talking about, these five form a trust. They have deceived the users and in doing so have, have abused people. Well, the burden of proof is on the one bringing the accusation. Have they formed a trust, though? 
Well, that's the question. Let's let's hold that question until we work through uh, at least finish the Clayton Act, and then we'll get into some pro and con argument strategies. Fair enough. Okay, Ethan, what's going on with the Clayton Act? So the Clayton Act, so the Federal Trade Commission Act and the Clayton Act were both enacted in um, 1914, and the Sherman Act was in 1890. And according to the FTC, the Clayton Act addresses specific practices that the Sherman Act does not clearly prohibit, such as mergers and interlocking. Uh, direct directorates is that okay mm-hmm. yep that is the same person making business decisions for competing companies it says section 7 of the Clayton Act prohibits mer- mergers and acquisitions where the effect quote may be substantially to lessen competition or to tend to create a monopoly again more ambiguity tend to create a monopoly as amended by the Robinson Patman Act of 1936 the Clayton Act also bans certain discriminatory prices services and allowances in dealings between merchants the Clayton Act was amended again in 1976 by the Hart Scott Rodino Antitrust Improvements Improvements Act to require companies planning large mergers or acquisitions to notify the government of their plans in advance. The Clayton Act also authorizes private parties to sue for triple damages when they have been harmed by conduct that violates either the Sherman or Clayton Act and to obtain a court order prohibiting the anti-competitive practice in the future. Whew. Go for it. Just react to that. I'm out of breath. Okay, fair enough. Uh, the first thing I think I, at the very bottom there I, strikes me very interesting that the Clayton Act triples the penalty if oh, you can man. prove this. But so what do you have to prove exactly? Tend to create a monopoly is one of the criteria yep. here. And notice how this is amended so many times as we – so you're right. Your, your hypothesis there is correct. Like every generation has to grapple with this new idea of what exactly – Well, keep in mind what's happening over time here. By 1936, we have the passage of various Jim Crow laws in a lot, a lot of southern states. So I'd be really curious. I don't know this. I'm thinking on the fly here. I, I suspect that that act, when it refers to uh, certain discriminatory prices, services, and allowances, that may be tying in racial discrimination practices and using competition to really isolate or to keep a whole field of competition from African-American competitors. So you're saying competition would help promote discriminatory practices? No, the other way around. That yeah, really so thought, that a company yeah. might form a trust so that really white companies are locking out the competitive space. And to prevent, say, for example, an African-American bank from operating in a city that had previously only had white people banks. We definitely have to look more into that, but I can see that happening, yeah. So as, and of course, also as we go throughout the 20th century, companies get larger and we start having global competition in the aftermath of World War II. So that's going to create larger companies and larger economic deals and the possibility of larger mergers, which the Clayton Act specifically addresses, uh, mergers and acquisitions that might lessen competition. Mergers are fine so long as there are not diminishing competition or, or diminishing the possibility of competition. So Agreed. That, that's at least my thoughts. Any reactions on the Clayton Act? So... Um just I, I'm kind of disappointed by how ambiguous these things are, but I'm also to a degree understanding because of how companies become more globalized over time, how companies make more money over time, and how you know there's the big five that we've been talking about. Their their revenues just been going up and up. So how do you really keep a progressive number just increasing over time along with these things? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm really interested to see how heavily these laws, or I guess the Sherman Act being the root of everything, have been enforced 
over time and what companies have been affected or had a slap on the wrist of this $100 million and 10 years in prison for actually violating these policies. Which does give both pro and con teams a good list of acts to research and court cases to begin investigating. Right. We have to track that over time. And so far, our acts are the Sherman Act, the FTC Act, the Clayton Act. And that last paragraph we read mentioned the Robinson-Patman Act of 1936 and the Hart-Scott-Rodino Antitrust Improvements Act of 1976. All of those give us good grounds of evidence, and also the each of those acts would have been discussed in Congress, which could which would have minutes, which could provide very interesting uh, evidence in those discussions. Right, I think those are definitely worth looking into. So let's get to the big the uh, other question we need to consider then. Now that we've at least got that historical and legislative context, uh, so who are our current? You've met, we've mentioned them a couple times already, but who are our current technology giants? So Invisipedia has one list. We can link that in the show notes of the top ten. And America, as far as American companies go, we have this list right here. It says Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, and Facebook. But Amazon isn't on that list. Under Amer- Is Amazon not an American company? I thought it was founded in Washington. Uh, it, it is listed. The uh, World Economic Forum lists Amazon as an American company. Number two, in fact. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, oddly enough, my brother Chris uh, used to live next door to Jeff Bezos on Mercer Island in Seattle. You're kidding. You I'm never told kidding. me this. I know. What are you doing? Why didn't you tell me that? I, it was kind of nuts. I really wanted him to create some moment where he could meet Jeff Bezos walking his dog. I was kind of imagining like it going like, Chris just kind of borrowing his friend's dog and then going like, Jeff, you have a dog. I have a dog. By the way, could you give me like a million bucks? Just to see what would happen. Does Jeff Bezos still live there? Oh, yeah, yeah. He lives, he's got a house on Mercer Island. Does your brother still have a house on No, he does not. What is he, your brother doing? <laughs> he could have... Wait, so would his house have gone up in value because Jeff Bezos lives next door? Well, he didn't own the house. He was renting. He, he was renting. He, he split was right the there. house like 14 other guys. They were all there working with a group called Young Life, and that helped them get into the house. All kinds of stuff. This is the same Chris. I didn't... Uh, he's in one of our previous episodes he, where he kind of talks about moving through different jobs. Chris must have had some awesome life experiences. <laughs> shout out to Chris. I mean, yep. that's so cool. It's you, kind I of ridiculous. I can't believe you never told me that too. That's just, you um, learn something new every day. That's true. Well, yeah, I don't know why uh, Investopedia didn't list them on this uh, on this particular list, but I wrote what fascinated about this list. I pulled the American ones out. The World Economic Forum, uh, I've got their, we've got their data here as well. But the the show these two lists both show that the real competition is between U.S. companies and Chinese companies. And this is I just noticed this too. This could be an important factor in isolating what technology giants are. All of the policies we've named so far are U.S. policies that the U.S. federal government could enforce. So, in as you just said, this looks like a U.S. versus China kind of deal. So if we're talking about U.S. policies. The top five technology giants are all U.S. companies, which gives us, one, a huge global advantage because the top five biggest tech companies are our companies. And number six is Alibaba for China with $484 billion in their um, valuation. But I think as far as technology giants would go, in my estimate, a safe bet would be the the big five. And Mm -hmm. going past that would get really complicated because policies from the U.S. federal government would not affect Chinese companies as they would American companies. Well, 
That was true, I think, when I put this outline together, but there have been headlines in the last three days uh, that may affect that. So uh, listeners, we're recording this on May 21st, and as of May 21st, uh, the headlines from yesterday and today have had a lot to say about uh, President Trump's latest regulations that directly affect a Chinese technology company, Huawei. I don't know exactly how to pronounce them, but they are trying to become a global competitor in cell phone technology. They're competing directly with, uh, with Samsung and trying to become the most popular global cell phone company. The trouble is that President Trump has initiated a trade war with China, and they're both currently, but China and the United States are passing tariff laws against each other. And currently, uh, Google just yesterday said that Huawei's uh, platform will not be allowed to use Google Play technology, which is a huge deal. That that's a that big restriction. It right is. So that's an American company that has said, okay, we're following the current law, which means this Chinese company does not get access to our Google Play platform. I don't know about you, man. I love my iPhone. So Samsung and Huawei, whatever, like... I feel terrible for bringing them up without learning how to pronounce their name. I, I have nothing against the company, I promise. I just don't know how to pronounce their name. Yeah, but I don't know. Yeah, so, so again, that, that could be, there could be a very interesting uh, argument both on pro and con, really looking about how this kind of antitrust regulation could affect global competition between the United States and China, which certainly could be part of the impacts. Well... With that in mind, we probably are talking about the tech giants. I think your best bet is to go with those top five, which once again are Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Facebook. I just saw this too. There's the list from the World Economic Forum. There's the top 10 list. Nine out of those 10 are public companies, but there's one company that's a private company. It's Ooh. called Ant Financial in China. I've never heard of it, but apparently they're um, valued at $150 billion dollars. Would this look different for public versus private funded companies? Because public companies have to share stock with lots of stockholders, and private companies do as well, but it's not like a public company. But there, still... When a company goes public, it does. they do submit to a whole new body of legislation that privately held companies do not submit to. So a publicly traded company is going to have to disclose a lot more information about their practices and their internal workings. Not necessarily in their proprietary practices or information, but just in terms of their their receipts and their income and all this stuff, they do have to disclose that. So that may also be an interesting factor. But you're, I don't know how much that's going to affect what number, which companies are those tech giants. But Ethan, let's let's shift into some actual suggestions. So uh, let's uh, we'll kind of wrap up with pro and con argument suggestions. So what do you think? What do you think is going on? How would you advise people who are preparing the pro case? For the pro case, your I think your number one priority is to is to prove that there's a trust happening between the big five. It depends on how you define trust. And I'm sure there's plenty of different definitions that are out there that would that would fairly define what a trust is. But I think the negative, the first thing they're going to come after is say that the big five aren't a trust and there's no real trust there because again, as all of these policies have shown time and time again, it's a really hard thing to prove. But as far as um, the affirmative team goes for for implementing antitrust regulations, just harp on competition all the way. That competition is the most important thing to protect the consumer. And um, the negative is I think the affirmative has really good arguments, but they're going to have trouble when it comes to the definitions area as far as uh, trust regulations needing to be put in place or what warrants putting antitrust regulations in place. 
but the negative the negative does have a good side on the definition saying there is no trust there so we don't need these regulations and i also did see a really cool argument for negative that that you showed me earlier from the conversation.org i think it was. oh yeah 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 well, what, i want to yeah. get to that later but that we is definitely really to to cool one. yeah so as far as the affirmative goes focus on getting those definitions solid so that Either you can prove a trust is there or that there's a dangerous potential for a trust to be there, which I think is a little bit of an easier and maybe safer route to go um, and show why antitrust regulations would need to be enforced. Since they are in place, my bad, I misspoke earlier, they need to be enforced to avoid this outcome. That's likely. So I would probably, uh, on top of that, I would add uh, probably a suggestion of a framework and then two main arguments that could be filled in with lots of examples. But the framework, I would draw on Friedrich Hayek's view of the market in his book, The Constitution of Liberty, which you mentioned earlier that really his, he argues that a market should be run as a space that is governed by rule of law in order that everyone inside of the rule of law can then operate freely. Which really then means we're not we're uh, then looking at the fact that the trust, whatever this trust is that the the pro side is arguing is happening, that trust violates the free space. It's as if we were on a playground and the trust is a big bully who has gathered some of his friends and they've formed a gang. And again, to keep this in childhood playground rules. What we really need in that situation is not a group of small children to fight against slightly larger small children. Really, we need a teacher to come along and make sure everybody is able to use the playground freely. And that's really what this antitrust regulation is all about. So you need to show that there is a trust that is forcing out competition and we need the government to do its job and enforce fair access to the market. What a great analogy. Well, but the there, there is a second route I think we could go in there, uh, and that's essentially looking at the fact that this, this resolution is not asking for new laws. Instead, it's literally saying enforce the laws that are already passed. So I think there is a strong argument to be made that it is vital for national security and human flourishing to simply follow the laws that are passed. In which case, we should simply, yes, agree, our nation does run on rule of law, so yes, enforce the laws. At which point, you need clear examples of, of people who are violating, of companies, tech giants, that are violating free competition according to the existing laws. I think I would have to disagree with the second route. I think it would work, and you could build a case off of it, but I think you're, you would lose so much of the educational potential that debate has for arguing for enforcing the law and just listing examples under that. While the hike in view of the market has such a great framework that, as far as the playground or the referees example with sports could offer. And I think that's a, a stronger framework to run a case off of. If I don't know if you agree with that, but as far as a pro case goes, I think that would be the coolest framework to run. And it would be really solid too. Well, I think those two could enforce each other and they could you think we, you use both. I think that, I think those could work well together, but it really, you've only got four minutes to make your really make your constructive before you begin responding to the affirmative or to the, to the con case. So really you may, that, that really may force, people to pick one. But if you have room, I would say go with both. And really th those ideas supported by lots of examples could help. But let's, where could we go for some examples, Ethan? You could, so there's um, pbs.org that has a good article about uh, Tim Wu, the law professor and author of the book, The Curse of Bigness, kind of like a general principle idea of, of big companies and how they would affect the smaller companies. Mm -hmm. 
Um, why the tech it, in the article, by the way, is titled "Why Tech Industry Monopolies Could Be a Curse for Society." If you want to look it he, up, he's done. Tim Wu has done a lot of work looking at this, and he actually does argue that current technology companies are approaching the level of a trust-style monopoly, and he thinks that that's a necessary part of the bigness in which these companies are operating. So his book might be a great asset for folks, and then his resources would themselves be a great place to mine for additional evidence. Uh, for your cases. This looks like a good place to focus on the potential of trust forming as well, that kind of potential argument we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Of course, examples are necessary for proving um, ex like examples of tech giants violating free competition, but it's worth noting some impacts as far as potential of if these trusts mm -hmm. got bigger, what would it look like for society? There was also recently a study conducted in the United Kingdom that really I, I've seen people citing that study in different ways. I have not read the study. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's quite a few pages, but we've got the link in the show notes. It's all available for free online. But that, it, so that study is looking at several technology firms in the United Kingdom, and I think should easily extend over to the United States, where you could say, it's happening this way in the UK. It could clearly happen this way here in the States. We need to break this trust up already. Uh, I thought it was really interesting that uh, very, rather recently, this this uh, yeah, as of this year, in March of 2019, Spotify filed an antitrust complaint against Apple Music in the European Union, and we've also got a we've also found the link to an essay that Spotify founder Daniel Ek wrote, uh, really making the same argument I was advocating for earlier about a free market and the necessity of the government preventing any one company from dominating the field. And he thinks Apple Music charging them to uh, play Spotify music uh, or to download Spotify through the Apple Store or through the App Store uh, really does. Does it cost money? Well, Spotify has to pay 30% of revenue they receive from, from people who download Spotify through the App Store to Apple Music. Hmm. So that, that maybe would fall under the Clayton Act's 10, or it may have been the before one, trending towards a monopoly. Right. That was the Federal Trade Commission Act, I think, that said that. Mm -hmm. But trending towards a monopoly, maybe that would fall under those criteria. Well, and certainly an Eck is arguing that that's really discriminating against them because Apple doesn't charge other companies the same way. I think you could make a good solid, like a solid case for why that would be considered a trust. Now, those last two arguments, listeners, do note that those are not American examples. So those may you may have you may be opening yourself up to uh, someone saying that doesn't apply because the U.S. federal government can't govern those. But I think there's easy workarounds to that. Well, let's let's shift then from uh, the pro side to con. Uh, Ethan, any specific thoughts about con? I think the number one argument we're going to see, or maybe not the number one, but a strong argument we're going to see on con is about punishing success. Because in it, I think one of a great example is Amazon, because Amazon was started by one person originally. He like there were team members surrounding Jeff Bezos and all of that, but he he's really the one man that began Amazon. And I'm not sure how much stock he holds in his own company, but I think it's a pretty decent amount. He, Do you know? I, I'm not confident. I think he still controls 51%. I think he yeah. still owns Amazon in terms of equity, but I'm not confident about that. But the, he, he is a pure success story from an American company and growing that to the, be the second biggest company as of, according to the World Economic Forum's list. And capitalism tends towards mega companies and the law should reward those who do well rather than punish them because... I mean, again, Amazon is only one example, but I'm sure you could find other ones like Steve Jobs and Apple. Right. Is, uh, a lot of people know about that example. It's a really, it's a really strong story. I don't know. I wouldn't use the word American dream here because I know people like to tear apart 
that phrase a lot, but really it was, it was people with innovative ideas that wanted to make a change in the way people do things and a shift in the marketplace trending towards getting packages delivered to your door in two days or having a good quality phone that's now competing with Samsung, but Apple being the number one on World Economic Forum's list. You can't punish the type of success that that offers because maybe it would decentivize it, maybe it wouldn't, mm -hmm. but it says something negative about capitalism and the way that capitalism is growing and creating wealth. And it's an important thing. I think it fits to, really well with the idea that these companies are succeeding, not because they've locked out the they've not not because they've locked out the market, but because consumers want what they're doing. Yeah, people want Amazon packages quickly. People want Netflix streaming directly to their phone. People want Facebook, honestly, because so far Facebook has created the easiest way for people to connect globally over the internet. So I think that. Now I'm, I'm starting to get a bigger picture of this debate too because affirmative team obviously wants to increase competition and smaller businesses should get a more fair chance of equal opportunity. Not equal, but a more equal, I guess, sort of opportunity. But Negative makes a great case that the people want these things that companies are looking for. And it's worth noting that what these companies do brings up other companies as well. I think Dr. Begley loves using this phrase that a rising tide lifts all boats. Yep. Maybe yep. it's not all boats, but one of the coolest arguments you were talking about with me earlier was how these large tech companies allow other companies to, you know, like Google Play. If you want to make an app, you can put it on the app store, you can put it on Google Play, and your company can grow alongside all of these big tech companies. So it, it helps facilitate the rest of the economy and drive these companies forward because again they're tech companies we're in sort of like the information age or mm -hmm. where it's technology based so if it were any other type of company like maybe um, Carnegie Steel industry would be a, a not so good of an example but now that we're trending towards technology could the case be made that it's different in this situation and that other companies can be brought up because of te what technology is and what it can do on a whole like, kind of economic scale. I think one of the articles we've got linked later on actually makes that ar argument. I think that's the one you were saying yeah. we should definitely come back to earlier. This author, uh, her article was entitled, Big Tech Isn't One Big Monopoly. It's five companies all in different businesses. This author argues that actually when you look at Apple, you're looking at the face of hundreds of companies that are all brought into the Apple family and the Apple fold. Uh, so one example of that would be looking at the way the App Store works and how you can really anyone can make an app and they can then go through a process to list their app on the App Store. And now that means there are and there are other companies that are then used in that whole process. And as as the person who makes the app is successful, Apple is successful, as all the companies that are helping Apple with coding and with marketing and with all the other pieces of the puzzle, well, they all become successful. When you look at Apple, you see this one face. But what you're looking at are hundreds, perhaps thousands of smaller companies that are all have a small piece of that puzzle and they're all going together. I think you brought up a really interesting idea that I also wanted to get at. I think there's an easy argument to be made here on con that these antitrust laws are simply outdated. And they're outdated in two different ways. Uh, this is before you have really global competition. In 1890, uh, British steel and American steel are far less competitive than American tech versus Chinese tech companies. Today, uh, American technology is in direct global competition, and their, their success depends on being globally competitive. Uh, so these antitrust laws are really outdated. But secondly, they're also not taking into account the way that venture capital has developed in the United States. 
So uh, I think I mentioned a couple episodes ago, I've recently started watching Shark Tank. And I've become a huge fan of Shark Tank. I thoroughly enjoy Mr. Wonderful and Mark Cuban and all those guys. It's a good show. It, it really is. And I'm fascinated by the way that it enables, and I think this is happening all across the, all across the country, because venture capitalists are making tons of money by equipping everyday people, giving them millions of dollars to develop a product, a service, an idea, and then as those people become successful and their companies grow, the venture capitalists get their money back with interest and everybody succeeds. But it means that it doesn't work, the economy does not work the way it used to. It used to take a lifetime to build a single small company into something mid-size. Now, modern venture capitalist networks allow people to have this propulsion through, not necessarily through debt, but rather through bringing on investment. And through mutual success, you can create a multinational company uh, in just a few years. Which really means the old argument about a trust locking out competition. A company becoming so big that it can't, uh, uh, can't be competed with, that's not true anymore. <laughs> And it's crazy to think about how often we, we interact with these company, companies. Wow, my throat is just crazy. One second. <clears throat> okay. It's crazy to think how often we interact with these companies, right? Like we both have iPhones in our pocket, yep. so that checks off one off the list. I mean, we both have Facebook on our phones. I don't know how to use it. I use Instagram, but again, that's owned by Facebook. I don't use Facebook. Instagram. I use Facebook. We're probably at a gen one of those generational things, but that's okay. Well, Keep Instagram's going. owned by Facebook. Isn't it? Like, is it? Yeah, res, it is. What's the res listeners? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's right. Why it am is. I calling out what's the res listeners that can't respond to what I'm asking? Well, it's because we want them to email us yeah, and drive please, our numbers up. Yeah. So that's okay. Again, Keep and going. look, Google is up right here. I Googled the monopoly definition that we were looking for. We're, and Microsoft, I guess, is just out of the picture for us right now. Uh, it's because we go to a school that, that uses all Apple products, and it's just so much easier to use all Apple products. It really but anyway. is. But these, I think the affirmative's case is going to be mainly on the part. Are, are harping on the arguments about control because currently these companies seem to be lifting up all of these smaller companies. And again, that propulsion idea you were talking about, not just focusing on venture capitalists, but what all of the platforms that are created by these companies can do for smaller businesses. I think the affirmative's best bet is to go with more of a control argument. What regulations are in place that these companies 100% control that could end up harming smaller businesses and benefiting them? But I think if you look really closely at the status quo, it doesn't seem like they're, if they have that power, it doesn't seem like they're using it to the fullest potential. And I could be wrong. There could be certain cases where these companies do abuse that power. But to go back to your play, your playground analogy, it seems like these are slightly bigger, smaller children, I guess you were talking about. Or just the big bully doesn't seem as much of a bully as he does someone who's helping the smaller kids onto the monkey bars. Well, if we follow that analogy as well, just a little bit further, uh, and I, I don't know if you see this where you are in 10th grade, but I certainly see it as a teacher. Uh, it, at certain stages uh, of development, it's, it is easy to have kids who shoot up to be six inches taller than their age level equivalent. But as you get, as you go forward in time, that generally evens out. Suddenly the differences are one and two inches. They're differences of 10 and 20 pounds. They're not differences of 150 pounds. They're not differences of two feet. They're, and really those differences even out. I think part of what Khan can get to is that AF is really freaking out over some differences today that if you look, take a longer view, those differences are going to even out over time. 
So generally, yes. We may that, be pressing that analogy too far. No, 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 no. That analogy works. I'm, I'm just an extreme example of a very short individual that has not yet grown to the potential. I mean, I don't think I'm going to be as tall as anybody, but everyone literally towers over me. I'm like 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, and I'm not sure how much taller I'm going to get, but that's kind of off topic. So well, maybe we can get, uh, maybe we, well, no, we, we're not going to buy the rights to the song, so we're not going to put the song on there, but there's a great song uh, that I learned in college. It's literally called Short People Got No Reason to Live. What <laughs> is wrong with you? <laughs> well, and our listeners obviously can't see us, but I'm not that tall of a guy either. I'm five foot seven and a quarter, according to my doctor's physical yesterday. So uh, I'm, I, I'm with you. Short people... That's okay. I could just buy some of those things for my shoes on Amazon. Oh, don't goes. do it. Don't I won't do it. do it. I'm not doing that. Integrity. Truthfulness. Well, you know, one last thought for our listeners, then we really need to draw this episode to a close. This is a long one. Yeah, we're getting there. But you, you know one of my favorite argumentative strategies about the end, of a, the end of a debate. By the time you get to the final focus in public forum, I think it really all comes down to what story you're telling. And that final focus, it's not about getting out one more fact it's not about finishing one more argument on the flow or hitting that one more argument that you dropped. It's about winning the heart and mind of the judge by telling a compelling story. So uh, I'm also a literature teacher as well as a debate coach. So as a thought towards the storying element of this case, I think AF needs to consider the fact that what you have, the story you are telling is ultimately a compelling, plausible conspiracy. And you embrace the conspiratorial idea here and call on the judge to intervene and vote for your side in order to, uh, in order to prevent the harms that the conspiracy is bringing. So that means that AF really has, uh, AF has, or PRO has a lot of ground to say, uh, there's a ton of harm that is possible here. And what you need to do is go all in on convincing the judge that these harms are real and are going to only increase over time. Well, Khan, uh, on the other hand, has a very different story. Khan has a story of freedom, a story of success, a positive story about gaining wealth and mutual progress that is happening through collaboration. And ultimately, then, Khan's world is looking at a success narrative that has happened through free interaction. And so really, ultimately, this, this is going to be a great debate, and it's going to come down to these compelling narratives that are looking at whether these laws are outdated or should be enforced. How does competition occur? Maybe what we're looking at is a more collaborative future rather than a competitive future. I think I, I completely agree with your idea of a narrative at the end of the debate, and I can almost see some public forum debaters just cringing at that idea because it's it, public forum is like inherently in the style of debate a very rapid pace with constant refutations and using that final focus to get out that last, maybe not argument, but re refutation to an argument. But I could not agree more. And I see Lincoln Douglas debaters doing this all the time. When you use a final speech, final focus, or like I guess the final AF rebuttal in an, as far as an LD perspective is concerned, people tend to talk really fast to get out that last point. And I'm, I'm following in my mind, I'm tracking as my opponent's doing this if I don't have the final speech. And what I see is that they're heading towards a couple of last points they want to make, and they just get it all out in the last 10 seconds because they really run out of time. And they almost trail off into this number. It, 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 sometimes it's a number. Like, I had this percentage, and my opponent's is not viable because of this. And the timer stops. It's really not an impactful way to end your speech. And it, I can't see that resonating well with any judge because maybe you've knocked one more sub point off the flow or, or flowed it to your side. 
But in the end, again, like you said, it's about winning the heart and mind of the judge. And I would highly advise any debater tries this idea, slow down in that final focus because it is called the final focus for a reason. Draw the round together and use this, res this resolution particularly to your advantage. It's almost not even a battle between beneficial and harmful, but I can see good and evil in the stories as far as these narratives are concerned. Not, not necessarily like a good and evil that's actual good and evil, but the way the stories are told, it's almost like these these companies are bad companies and they're trying to do bad things. And here there's conspiracy, that word used um, in one of the acts that we talked about earlier, I think it was a uh, trade commission one or the FTC one, but, and not necessarily um, benefit or not necessarily good and evil on the other side, but benefit on the other side concerned with these companies are doing good things and their intentions are to help people for um for lifting up other companies and promoting the economy as a whole. And while the proof is important on both sides, it really I think in that last speech should come down to the story and the narrative of, of are these companies doing bad things? Are their intentions bad? They're doing good things and is it really a good thing for the economy? And I think that'd be a really nice way to wrap up a debate and use a public forum resolution, this one, for telling a good story and telling it with facts to back it up and convincing a judge with persuasion instead of just spitting out a ton of facts at the end of a round. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another episode of What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a debate coach and humanities instructor at Thales Academy Rollsville. I'm joined today by my co-host, co Ethan Delves, and we want to wish all of the debaters at NSDA, NSDA Nationals 2019 the best of luck, and we hope that this episode has been helpful as you're preparing for the public forum resolution. Ethan, just in case any of our listeners want to get in contact with us, how can they reach us? If you'd like to reach us, you could always email us at whatstherez at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. We would love to hear some feedback from you guys. And as far as following us on Instagram goes, we have an Instagram and a Twitter page, which is whatstherez underscore. You can follow us there. And just to allude to what we were talking about at the beginning of this um, whole episode, Again, just one more shout out to Breaks. A huge, amazing program. I see you laughing too. I know. I just really loved it. Huge shout out to Breaks. Really great program. If you want to check out their website, it's putonthebreaks.org. We're not in any way sponsored by them. But again, just a really cool thing to know. Listeners, until next time, work hard, speak well, and see the truth.